Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Emily Shepherd. We're going to be talking about seaweed, which apparently is the latest, greatest thing to save the world or something. I remain sceptical and probably will remain sceptical at the end of the podcast as well. So, Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, excuse my croaking, which is yet to go away. I Hopefully, I will not be stuck for the rest of my life like this, but only time will tell. So before we get started, some administrivia. Please do like and subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. I normally ask sort of in the middle of the episode, but sometimes I forget. So I thought I'd ask earlier in an attempt to make sure I remember. We have got about back catalogue of about 125 episodes, I think, somewhere around that. So plenty to listen to and you can send the links to your friends or enemies, depending on your opinions of our podcast. And, and spread the love around a little bit. So that out of the way, all over and done with, I'm going to get on with my housework and let Emily talk to you about seaweed. So do you want to give us the title of the paper and tell us what the basic concept is, and then we can like, move into the me arguing with you stage. Sure. So the title is Seaweed Biogeochemistry, Global Assessment of CN and CP Ratios and Implications for Ocean Afforestation. Let me just explain back to you, I think, told me so you're talking about nutrient ratio so how much of different types of nutrients different types of seaweed use right yeah so yeah it's it's how much in particular we're looking at carbon to nitrogen and carbon to phosphorus so for each mole of carbon how much nitrogen do seaweeds use and the same for phosphorus what you might call the kind of fertilizer efficiency so exactly so how much uh nutrients are needed per mole of carbon fixed and so we were particularly looking at carbon to nitrogen and carbon to phosphorus and why is that important we were initially looking at it in the context of ocean afforestation and it may not immediately seem important for that so so hang on can you define that for us because people might not know what that means okay yes so ocean afforestation is growing seaweeds in like cultivating seaweeds in the ocean in places where they wouldn't grow naturally so this could be in the open ocean um, in areas with sandy bottoms so usually seaweeds would need to be naturally growing on a rocky reef because they they're holdfast attached to rocks but ocean forestation is about growing these seaweeds on on ropes and uh, what what comes first is it is the rocks appear in the seaweed rich ecosystems because of surface processes or um is it that the seaweed only grow where there are already rocks which of those two things is happening because it's not you it would you'd assume it would be the seaweed grows where there's rocks but maybe it's more complex than that right ecology has a habit of being annoyingly complicated <laughs> yeah i have never considered that question but i i would also guess the rocks were there first. <laughs> I mean, rocks would probably go there, you know, go back in time a lot longer. And then, yeah. Well, yeah, it, they last longer than an individual seaweed plant, but that's not the basis of the question. What I'm saying is like, you know, ecosystems act so as to sustain themselves, right? They, they, there's a, a, that's a kind of Gaia-esque approach. And what I'm saying is like just putting some rocks in a place where seaweed doesn't normally grow it might not result in any seaweed or might not result in sustainable oh seaweed. i see what you're saying like if you were to add rocks 
yeah, would the sea recolonize? At the moment, we're somewhat uncertain as to whether it's the the seaweed's presence as an ecosystem that's shaping the physical landscape or whether the seaweed is just arriving into this landscape and finding it a nice place to live and staying there. So apparently I'm the first person who's thought of this, but this seems unlikely. I'm sure there are some other biologists have thought about uh, how environments are maintained under the ocean. And Gaia theory is not something that's new. Uh, so um, at the moment, you, you're you sort of concentrating on doing things that make seaweed grow where seaweed wouldn't normally grow. The important piece okay. is not just about growing seaweeds in places where seaweed otherwise wouldn't grow. It's about explicitly doing this for carbon sequestration and for okay. enhancing, um, but, enhancing the, the but, natural biological carbon pump. Okay, but, but let's take a step back. So what grows when seaweed doesn't? I mean, like, is there just nothing or is there some different type of plant or what? Great question, because this is kind of the core of our paper, the kind of the, the initial idea. So in most areas of the ocean, the nutrients already all being utilised, and this is by phytoplankton, or by, by seaweeds and seagrasses in coastal areas. So, yeah, ocean afforestation would mean replacing or at least competing with those phytoplankton ecosystems in the open ocean. Well, why um, would you want to? I mean, what's the point? As long as the carbon's being metabolised by something, why do you care what it's being metabolised by? Yeah. So the reason to possibly replace these phytoplankton ecosystems with seaweed is because of these CN and CP ratios. So um, back in 1983, Atkinson and Smith did the seminal study on seaweed CNP ratios, and they found that seaweeds have on average higher ratios than phytoplankton. So what that means is that in theory, for the same amount of nutrients, seaweed could fix more carbon than phytoplankton. So doesn't that mean they just outcompete? Well, that's sort of a so they seaweeds would in some circumstances likely outcompete the phytoplankton as in they would grow fast, they would shade the shade the phytoplankton out. Although even that is is there's complex interactions and it's not necessarily always the case. Um, but there is some initial data from from large scale seaweed farms to show that yeah the, the seaweed in many cases does does outcompete the phytoplankton, and then and it's just a lack of rocks that stops the process, right? You need shallow water and you need somewhere for it to stick to fundamentally, right? Oh, you mean for the seaweed to grow? Well, yeah, you the seaweed can't really... grow in like two miles of water, can it? Well, no, not naturally. But if you were growing it on ropes then you could grow it in deeper water as in because you're growing it from the top. So it's still in yeah, the Yeah, and don't you get some don't you get some seaweed that floats? Like isn't sargasso a floating seaweed? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And yeah, there there so that's are that's what sea fields do. So you talk you sort of go by startup. So sea fields do sargassum. They I think they bundle it and bury it. They pull it out of the sea and put it in bundles and then bury it underwater right so it goes into a couple of miles of sea and then this basically disappears from the short-term carbon cycle right and then you've got 
people like running tight that grow seaweeds on ropes in oyster beds, right? In that kind of that littoral environment, right? Mm. Are you familiar with these companies or not? No, Seafield, did you say? Seafields, yeah. No, I'm not I'm not aware of that company in particular. Yeah, they've just they've just um, done some of their first trials of dumping uh, seaweed, bundled seaweed into the deep ocean. Yeah, so looking at ocean afforestation more in the context of of growing seaweed on ropes. Yeah, so if you grow this seaweed on ropes, then what do you do with it? Do you just leave it there and store carbon in an active ecosystem, or are you going to burn it? Yeah. What's the Yes, another complexity in this whole thing. So, firstly, as the seaweed is growing, and this is naturally as well as as in within ocean afforestation, it's releasing dissolved organic carbon uh, and that's get that's just being released into the water column as it's growing uh, there's not the dissolved a- organic carbon is what d or c yeah, I, don't I, know, know. I know the yeah i know the letters for it but what i'm saying is like what is it i mean like is it methanol or what i don't know exactly what it is yeah, yeah. it's something that is less studied than the POC carbon cycle, but the particulate organic carbon, which is we were more looking at. But I just wanted to, yeah, mention so first. Particular organic carbon is like bits of stuff, right? Yeah, that's like the nice seaweed blades, like like the bits of carbon actually in the seaweed itself. Whereas the the DOC is released as it's growing, so it's released into the water. It's more like a chemical type of carbon that, that some of which becomes recalcitrant which means it's stored in the in the water column for hundreds of years but there's yeah you've got stuff that doesn't readily get metabolized again so if they're secreting things like long chain waxes for example they're not very if you if you get a candle and leave it on your kitchen side you don't come back and find it's rotted and gone moldy and been eaten by flies do you so (laughs) yeah yeah so some percentage is recalcitrant and so that that is just one pathway that carbon is sequestered through through seaweed and that's something that is is kind of just starting to be become more understood but we were looking at poc which is more what the majority of ocean afforestation studies look at when you, and so that's okay, the, when you say particular i mean like are you talking like little bits or huge chunks or what i mean or does that come absolutely um i suppose it's it's both so it's little bits that might get eaten by say a sea urchin or might break off due to water motion and then it might be some bigger bits that say during a storm a seaweed might get pulled off and... that's equivalent of leaf litter in detritus on the forest floor but there's the ocean going version of that right it's a what way i think I mean, people see forests all the time because they walk through them, but they very rarely sort of snorkel and frolic around in the sea, do they? So <laughs> yeah, it takes. Yeah, exactly. So I suppose it's the more kind of tangible form of of carbon, and okay. so about yeah, how what what happens to it? So there's a few different sort of suggestions in the literature of how do we go about actually storing this carbon in the long term because when we're looking at just the CN and CP ratios, we're talking about 
carbon fixation, which is just short term. It means like the carbon that's just stored while that seaweed is, is living. Like standing biomass in a forest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, yeah, it's short term. We can't really count that towards kind of changing the... the um... Well, that's bold, isn't it? Because yeah. a lot of people think you can. Right. A lot of people rake out that standing biomass is the best thing since sliced bread and you, could, you should pay them lots of money for it. I'm not persuaded. Right. Um, so can you... Is standing biomass the just the leaves on trees or is it... Well, oh, yeah, oh, but it's... it's and the trunk. Oh well, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, yeah. Basically, everything that's everything that's alive, but also, you know, a lot of people will count ecosystem carbon. So, if you've got something like a desert, and then you find some way to make it grow, turn into a grassland or whatever, mm. like by diverting a river or something like that, then people might charge you lots of money for uh, doing the um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the carbon storage, right? Yeah, I mean, I think seaweed is even. It, even shorter term, like a tree, we're talking about, you know, possibly decades. Um, yeah, but it's the forest, not the tree, right? Right. Okay, yeah, so they're talk, talking about that on a, on a forest scale. Yeah, um, but you're basically yeah. saying that's not where the money lies or it's not what you're aiming at. It's you're, you're looking at stuff that is kind of more sticky in terms of its carbon storage, right? Yeah, exactly. We're looking at how can we be sure, I suppose, that, this extra additional carbon that's coming from this process, how can we be sure that that is locked away long-term yeah. um, so that can have a meaningful impact for you know, mitigating climate change? And so there's a few proposals in the literature of how to do this. One of them is to harvest the biomass and then burn it in a biochar scenario. Yeah. And then store that biochar in, in soils. Um, so you take the seaweed out of the sea, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the problems with that is you get nutrient loss, right? So exactly. You, you exactly. don't really want to move it from one ecosystem to the other. So why can't you take your biochar out and put it in the sea? What's wrong with biochar in the sea? Well, whether it would stay there long term, I'm not sure. Well, is it whether in the sea than it does on the ground? I mean, it doesn't seem obvious to me that it would. Whether any quicker in the ocean? There's quite a lot going on in soil. It's quite well aerated in many cases and lots of bugs and beasties and stuff crawling around trying to eat things. So, you know, mm. why, would you, why would you expect it to last longer on the land than you would in the sea? And also, you've got to move it. I mean, like, if you've got a shit biochar reactor on it, just float around and chuck it out off the side into the sea again, right? Mm. It would be logistically simpler than taking it inland and burying it, right? Yeah, I... Yeah, I haven't looked deeply into this method, so I'm not sure whether they do that. I suppose the benefit of taking it on land is that you is that the biochar is helpful to the soils. I think the adding the seaweed into the biochar in particular. Um, okay, so you're looking like an agricultural benefit, right? So you, yeah. you put it on land because the intention is that by putting it on land, you do something to your farm that it would not otherwise do, and it makes you some money, right? That's the rough approach, right? Yeah, and I suppose either way, you're going to have to replace the nutrients. So if you say you threw it in the ocean, the biochar, and it sank, if you're lucky. Well, that's not necessarily true, is it? Because it may be that the, the nutrients on the land are, um, are still labile, right? So you've got, if you've got phosphorus, it doesn't necessarily stay stuck in the biochar. I know it might stay stuck in the biochar, but it might not. I don't understand fully whether it would or wouldn't stay stuck in the biochar, right? 
Well, just because yeah, something's but... in by a child doesn't mean it can't come out again, does it? No, no, no. Yeah, but, like... I, but I mean, you'll, you'll have to replace the nutrients for if you're going to grow more seaweed in this way, say. And, and we're taking yeah but well, yeah point of, but i mean you've already got phosphorus that floats around the sea anyway generally speaking not there's too much nitrogen in the sea right? you don't want more nitrogen than you've got in the sea because you don't want it well, to be uh, there are some there are some areas that have too much nitrogen and this might be like runoff areas with agricultural runoff or uh, fish farms and so, yeah, like the sort of Mississippi Delta, for example, where you've got a big farming area in the Midwest, and then all the nutrients end up in the Mississippi, and then they go downstream and cause chaos in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Uh, there are some river basins highly agriculturalized, right? Such so as the Mississippi Delta in, uh, in uh, the US, and then equivalently in the UK, you've got the ooze, which drains the farmland in the east of England, right? Other river systems that drain into, say, the Arctic. But because they're cold and uh, from nutrient-poor soils uh, or rocky areas, they're just not suitable for agriculture. So you don't get a nutrient addition. So not every river is transporting a lot of man-made nutrients into the ocean, right? But some of them are, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose there is, I remember exactly which paper it was now, but there was a paper on ocean afforestation that was saying that oh, we would need to plant out nine percent of the world's oceans in order nine percent yeah in order for ocean afforestation to sort of have a meaningful impact that's absolutely oh yeah if it would be yeah absolutely massive and like there's not it's not necessarily feasible it was just this this paper was well i think you can go a bit further than that and say it's absolute bollocks but you know (laughs) um so anyway in that context uh would be way more than the percentage of the ocean that has, you know, higher nutrients from human influence. So it, with, with ocean afforestation at a larger scale, we're sort of not just looking at these areas, growing the seaweed in these areas where there are higher nutrients and where then, you know, it would actually potentially have a positive effect of soaking up some of those nutrients and we wouldn't need to keep adding in more nutrients to keep the seaweed growing. Yeah, at a larger scale, there would be a lot of places where we would be growing the seaweed that okay. doesn't have these so, high nutrients. So, so then, so, it, so what you're saying is that in areas like if you if you were to scale this to kind of make a stupid scale, mm. like you know the kind of nonsense that only comes up in geophysical models and not actually anybody's real plans, unless your plans involve BEX, then you end up in a situation where you have to add insane amounts of nitrogen to the world's oceans. And, and your experiments are basically saying, well, how much nitrogen would you have to add, you know, if, if you were, you know, going beyond the scale of just growing a bit of seaweed in the Mississippi Delta where it's cheap because it's warm and there's loads of nutrients coming off the Mississippi. Uh, mm. And look, that's even one step further than our research. Like, actually, we're just right back at that first step of, okay, seaweed's actually more efficient at fixing carbon per nutrient resource than phytoplankton. Which we but were they? Were they? Did you say? Yeah, were they more efficient? Oh right. <laughs> so are you giving the impression earlier that they were more efficient? I'm just wondering if there was something oh, to me. Um, yes, yeah, they were. So uh, this this 1983 study that I mentioned before, this Atkinson and Smith Atkinson and Smith study, they found out that yes, 
seaweeds were more efficient than that phytoplankton and what we did is we synthesized all of the literature data since then for anyone that had reported c percentage c nlp in seaweed and so we had a, a much bigger sample size and with that we, we found an updated global mean molar ratio which was just slightly higher than what the Atkinson and Smith found. And anyway, the important thing is that, yeah, we, we found say, that. When you say it's higher, so seaweed is even better than they thought it was, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so basically, if you, want to, if you want to turn carbon dioxide into fixed carbon, then any kind, then seaweed is better than phytoplankton, and it's even better than its original study, which has got about a billion citations um, yeah. found. But despite your study being newer and more correct you haven't got a billion citations hmm. well you know it's early days it's only been okay. just under months. a billion a billion is just around the corner right <laughs> yeah 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 after this podcast right <laughs> hopefully well you might get a couple more but you know do, do a few more podcasts you get to a billion eventually <laughs> um, yeah so to put that in in easier to comprehend numbers I suppose specifically, we found that seaweeds uh, have on average 2.8 times higher CN than phytoplankton and four times That's higher. That's quite a lot. It it's is. not a small number. I mean, I was expecting you to say like 5%. Or something like that. Yeah. It's a really big shift. Is there some like metabolic reason why this is the case? Like a kind of, you, on, on land plants, you get a C3 and C4, don't you? Right? Mm. I can never remember the... Um, I think the C3 and C4 refers to the number of carbons in their output, their primary output from the photosynthetic molecular process, right? But I might be wrong on that. So are seaweeds and plankton using just fundamentally different photosynthetic machinery, or is it just a kind of combinatorial effect of loads of different small innovations in a plant and you just get a bit of efficiency? It's like a phytoplankton is very small. It's like a kind of cottage industry, whereas a seaweed is quite large. It's like a factory. So there mm. to be some kind of efficiency gains overall but is it more fundamental than that i mean is it is it the basic chemistry that's more efficient or is it a kind of aggregate effect from having all of this uh, you know infrastructure of the plant itself mm. well i think one of the reasons is that many seaweeds have an ability to store nitrogen and store phosphorus not all but many do so this allows them i suppose to survive when nutrients are limiting and that's when you see these much higher cn or cp ratios and then they can they can kind of use those internal nitrogen stores to just i think of it as kind of surviving not thriving you know like they're definitely like limited but they've got some biscuits in the cupboard yeah (laughs) yeah wait while they're waiting for payday right just yeah. sitting there in front of munching biscuits because there's nothing else to eat, right? Mm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's like phytoplankton boom and bust really quickly, don't they? So exactly, exactly. I mean, that's they're like not... your irresponsible mate that goes out on payday and spends his entire paycheck, right? <laughs> yeah. By nine pm, by nine pm on payday, he's drunk it all, right? And then for the rest of the month, he's begging, borrowing, and stealing, trying to get through the month, right? <laughs> and um, uh, the would you call them? They're not. Are they called vascular plants? And uh, seaweeds vascular, or is that a vascular plants only land plants? 
Well, they're not. They're not plants. They're algae. No, I know. I know. I know. But they've like, I don't get this. Like, what is the difference? Like, isn't the seaweed just a plant that grows in the sea? I mean, like, bi- biologists seem to be very cross when you call seaweed plants, <laughs> and I don't even understand why they get so cross about it. Uh, I think it's because they're evolutionarily distinct. But well, plants must blue- have come from somewhere. I mean, aren't well, look at it the other way around. I mean, aren't, aren't land plants just seaweeds that happen to grow in the land? <laughs> well, what always blew my mind is that seagrass are were land plants, and then they went back to the sea. And oh, right, they, okay. They, like whales. Yeah, like whales. Seagrass is whales of the uh, plant world. So seagrass, is, so seagrass is a genuinely plants, right? Yeah. Whereas macroalgae, um, so sargasso is a macroalgae, right? So yeah. That was, never, that was never a plant. It's always been a water-dwelling species yeah, throughout yeah. evolutionary history, right? Yeah. And they also have different, what's the word, pigments. So there's there's red seaweeds, there's green seaweeds, there's brown seaweeds. And so the green seaweeds... And the green ones, are they chlorophylls or not? Yeah, so they are chlorophylls. But in brown seaweeds and red seaweeds, they have other accessory pigments to take advantage of the different light conditions. They've had a glow up. Well... Yeah, it's just because as because of the way that light attenuates in water quite quickly and the green seaweeds are generally found in intertidal zones or quite shallow areas and so the light hasn't attenuated yet so there's similar light spectrum to what there is on land. Um, yeah. So they have the class. You lose all your red as you go down, don't you? So your red gets absorbed and your blue gets scattered. Yeah, yeah, and so your deepest... The red seaweeds are usually deepest. They're they're kind of but to, to be to be clear, the red is the opposite colour, isn't it? So green plants reject green light, so they're not using green light. Whereas no. red seaweeds are not are not using red light because they they're rejecting red light because they're red, right? Mm, they couldn't yeah. be using red light if they were red because they're always rejecting. Yeah, yep. it's kind of a bit ass backwards, but you have to. I know. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it's an easy mistake to make. It's like I, I did some teacher training once when I was a bit younger and then decided whether I wanted to go into teaching. As I'm doing this podcast, you can tell I didn't go into teaching. <laughs> um, uh, but I always try to drum into the children that um, you don't talk about red cones and green cones in your eyes because they, they, mm-hmm. the one thing you can be sure about is they're not red and they're not green. They're red sensitive cones, right? If they were red, mm-hmm. you perceive them as red and they wouldn't absorb red light, right? So mm. similar with seaweed, right? But yeah. anyway, we're massively distracted now. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> all very entertaining. I like the little distractions on review too. And learn about completely irrelevant stuff, but <laughs> yeah. I've actually got to cover the paper at some point. So uh, uh, where were we? I just remember we still have still got another way of that researchers have looked at trying to sequester the carbon long term, but I don't know if you want to go all the way back there yet or if you've got some more. You want that now? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Back to what 15 minutes ago when you asked me uh, how do we ensure that the carbon is is stored longer term, something like that. And we started by talking about harvesting it and turning it into biochar and then went on many diversions. Another way is to harvest it and try and get it to sink, 
to the deep ocean. Um, yeah, which... that's the Seafields method. Right. I think running tide also do sinking as well, but they use boi- buoys or buoys, depending mm. on which part of the world you're from. So, mm. how, so how do they use buoys? Because don't they float? Um, I think they, they get heavier over time and then sink. Okay. And the seaweed is attached to the buoys. So it... Yeah, yeah, that's how that's the running tide method. Whereas mm. sea fields bundle them up and then sink them in bales. Okay. As far as I understand, don't sue me if I've got it wrong, running tide. <laughs> and uh, sea fields. I don't think sea fields are sue me because I know the guy that runs sea fields. We used to bizarrely work together in a completely different context. And you know, suddenly he turns up oh. in the carpet space and it's oh i've seen you before yeah right <laughs> there you go it's all world um so i mean with that there are i think still a lot of uncertainties of whether like just how to do that i suppose and whether it really does sequester the carbon long term but also you still have the same issue of you're going to have to replace the nutrients because yeah, you're yeah. harvesting biomass and you're dropping it and then you're, you're depleting I mean, that with, with nitrogen, that's, you know, just an energy problem, right? You can make nitrogen fertilizer out of water electrolysis to make hydrogen and then, you know, nitrogen out of the air and a lot of energy. So it's not an insoluble problem, but phosphorus is a lot harder, right? So if we were going to be doing this on a global scale um, with 11% of the oceans or whatever, utter nonsense people proposed in the past, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd end up with quite a lot of phosphorus that you need yeah and and then like this is again beyond the scope of our paper but iron as well and there was a recent hold on i mean yeah i mean iron is drawing attention to a separate problem because iron is not a globally limited nutrient i mean a substantial fraction of the earth's crust is iron right whereas phosphorus is a globally limited nutrient i mean you can't stuff's globally limited you just can't make more of it right unless you're going to go into nuclear reaction series and stuff like that because phosphorus mm-hmm. isn't it it's elemental right you can't just you can't make it out of other stuff because it's an element right yeah right i see what you mean so there's, there's sort of two issues so there's that yeah the phosphorus issue which is just kind of like very tricky but then there's also just energy cost of needing to fertilize um which well, that nitrogen yeah i mean it's yeah in terms of current world energy usage, I mean, are we looking at if you were to fertilize the ocean, global oceans with nitrogen, would we have to double global energy usage or what? I don't know. But you haven't, yeah, you have got the numbers. Okay, no, mm. I'll get someone who understands the global energy system on podcast at some point and ask them a stupid question about yep. a stupid <laughs> method that no one's ever going to use at that scale, but you know, keeps <laughs> us amused and off the streets out of trouble. That's it. Stops us stealing cars and getting arrested. So, right, what else does your paper say and do? I mean, you've, you've kind of, the central point of it is, as I think, that you have got better numbers than this seminal paper, but mm. you put it into the context of carbon removal. Is, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that was quick and go home now, can I? Yeah, all right. <laughs> right. Okay. What are the implications of this? I mean, like, you're basically saying that seaweed is better than we thought it was, but it's still stupid, according to you, because you'd have to cover 11% of the global ocean with it, which is not exactly a small amount of space, is it, right? Why, why does anyone care? Yeah, well, I suppose the context that we, we did this study in is that, as I'm sure you've noticed, given how you introduced this topic, there has been an influx of literature studies 
as well as I would say more like like public discourse and fundraisers and companies, so many yeah. all these different realms well, around. A, a cynic might say that all of these methods are very popular at the moment because they avoid hard problems. Like mm. people want to do things with trees and fluffy bunnies rather than you know, solar geoengineering or direct air capture machines that aren't quite as benign looking and anything that allows people to avoid hard things by doing easy things you know it's like it's like the liposuction of uh yeah. management right you know yeah. don't, you don't have to put the ice cream down just book in with the liposuction and you'll yeah. be absolutely fine right no difficult decisions required yeah just pay just pay the money right so and yet and yet it's it's really a red herring because this just seems more natural because it's using yeah, well, it's not thing, natural it's if not you're covering the entire nat- no, <laughs> exactly. Eleven I mean, percent of the global ocean in yeah, stuff that so, I, so yeah, so yeah, I agree. I think I think that's partly why seaweed um, for carbon sequestration gained so much popularity because it was perceived to be a natural technique, and even though it is, of course, geoengineering at this scale, exactly, um, yeah. And so, I hate you when people try and make out that carbon removal isn't geoengineering. I mean, like, yeah, like I run a geoengineering mailing list. We don't cover carbon removal on that, but you know, that's for administrative reasons rather than the nomenclature. Um, so, I mean, if you're if you're changing eleven percent of the global ocean to do something you wouldn't actually do, that's a lot of change. Totally. So basically, to do that, to do that, you'd have to put a lot of rocks in or whatever or floaty ropes or something like that depending on how deep the stuff was mm. and then um, uh, what else would you have to do all loads of nutrients in. yeah and then also figure out how to cultivate harvest it <laughs> i mean There's lots of robots going around digging like pulling the ropes up and stripping the seaweed off them and, yeah and then turning it into biochar yep <laughs> sounds like something out of tube the seaweed must flow yeah <laughs> that was the context that we begun this paper and a little bit of a, a personal story is so this was my honors project and i had just finished what does that mean, does that mean um, your master's thesis yes yeah, my, my honors thesis so honors is the like a single year research degree after the bachelor's okay um, like a, a master's basically it's a master's by research right yeah yeah exactly. and you published it as a paper yeah Okay. So did you do one paper in a year or what? Well, yeah, one paper, but with a whole lot of background as well, as in the, the output was about double these words with just more explaining. Okay. So the, equivalent, the equivalent of two papers, so you did the dissertation and you got a paper out of the dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What did you do for the other 11 months? <laughs> well, I did have to look th- 200 studies including very old ones to find all of the percent carbon nitrogen and phosphorus and some of these you'd have to kind of put through this web plot digitizer because it was just like a hand-drawn plot and find all these numbers and put them in my huge spreadsheet so that was about three months i think (laughs) sounds annoying (laughs) yeah it it was a long time but you so know, it's done what now. Are you doing, what are you doing with your life now? I mean, like, have you sort of got sufficiently annoyed with research you never want to do any of it again, or have you decided it's great fun, or just better than getting a job at Tesco's, or what? 
so I, I've always been the kind of person that likes to have multiple things going on in my life. It just, my brain works best and I feel happiest like that. And it's busy. Yeah. Oh, well, I actually want to say not necessarily busy, although that is how it has worked for <laughs> like the last decade, but um, just trying now to find some more balance and have a million things on, but just, I think my brain works best with diversity and yeah, with okay. drawing connections between different things. So I've, I grew up studying classical music and as a kind of young adult begun working in that space. Um, and then what did you play or were you a recording um, engineer or something like that? Um, played violin. Okay. So you play, you must play quite violin quite well to do it as a job. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Okay. I went to a music high school and went to a music academy after that. And yeah, worked really hard at it as a young person. And how did you end up as an ocean biologist? Because that isn't a. <laughs> well, yeah, deep, I know. Is it really? Well, I then moved to Tasmania 10 years ago as a 20 year old. And I just instantly. Uh, People met... seem to go to Tasmania and then never leave. It's like a sort of oh. black hole of academia. You go there and then like there's, <laughs> no, there's no exit from the place. Not even like an escape from Tasmania. I've never met what he says. Oh, I went to Tasmania for a bit and then I've left. I've met loads of people who are in Tasmania and have made there. So it's either great or just very limited options once you've ever been. You just get jumped <laughs> like a pariah. It's like, oh, you're from Tasmania. I'm never going to give you a job anywhere else or let you live anywhere else. <laughs> Stay away from us, freak. Yes. Uh, let's let's leave that perception out there. <laughs> it's terrible. Don't visit. It doesn't sound bad, to be honest, what people say about it. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And I I instantly fell in love with it. I, literally the first day I woke up and I went for a walk and then I was on a mountain track within two minutes and I just thought, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know it was possible to just like live like this. So, Quite yeah. Colorado, you don't live in Boulder, that's pretty much the lifestyle you're going to have. Right. I think I think Ithaca's quite nice like that as well. You get I get I don't get to go to all of these places, but I get to talk to people who worked in there. Mm. So Cornell's at Ithaca. Uh, mm. nobody's talk, nobody from Ithaca seems to be talking to me at the moment. That's upset them all. Yeah. Uh, but people from Tasmania are still are for some reason. Probably because I'm not working <laughs> in their sub discipline, so they don't get cross when I do research that they don't like. Um uh-huh. I see. <laughs> so um but what, what's your ambition? So you've done your master's, equivalent to your master's degree, and then what? What, what kind of? What's the plan after that? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, before before I did that honors, I did my bachelor's in geography um, and agricultural science, and and then okay. marine science as well. So I did very diverse. Did you wear a corduroy jacket with elbow patches on like a proper geography teacher? When you <laughs> I know. I was never, I was never quite <laughs> going that far. Okay. But I did yeah, once have I, a, br- I did once have a brown sort of velour jacket. It was quite nice. It looked quite good on me. I wore it so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wore it so much that I started to knacker the elbows. And I did briefly consider putting elbow patches on it to maintain the jacket I've grown to rather, rather like. And I just had this flashback or flash forward mm-hmm. rather to me 
wearing this and uh, looking at myself in the mirror and realising I had actually become a geography teacher in the 1970s. And there were no matches <laughs> ever, ever mentioned or discussed or searched for after that moment, I can assure you. <laughs> you you've done your master's thesis but what are you going to do with the rest of your life now what, what's the plan <laughs> well i also still working as a musician but in the last 10 years i've expanded a lot are you to violin at them yeah people do okay um, is that good fun but, but look since since finishing my honors and uh, i found some work in social science and fisheries and people pay me more to, to work in that than to play violin so hey that's, that's not surprising really yeah okay so you're now using your marine biology and geography experience in fisheries social science is that right yeah exactly what do you study um, i mean that's completely relevant i don't care i'm still going to talk about it anyway yeah uh in my work no yeah the fishery social yeah. science what's that sort of about so a few different projects one of them is looking at indonesian tuna fishery and looking at governance and looking at the impact that policy changes would have on people's livelihoods fishers livelihoods um, so it's sort of working in tandem with if we to create governance that helps to keep the stocks are not overfished, so there's a lot of like ecologically based governance. Uh, how can we also make sure that in those changing policies, we're not having a big impact on people's livelihoods? So kind of looking at uh, which groups are more vulnerable to changes, which groups are more dependent on fishing and are more relying on it for income, also for sustenance, for food, for protein. Um, and okay. so some of them you say you can keep fishing and some of them you say learn to code right yeah i mean it's exceedingly complex <laughs> trying to just even just to figure out who is dependent who is vulnerable and when and who may become vulnerable and and then to create policies and there's lots of different scales of fishing from small scale and sort of informal sectors to larger scale and big fleets and the tuna also migrate so there's like different different governments need to collaborate and figure out the, the well, policy so it's, yeah it's, well, it's that's all quite interesting and in order to create a tenuous link to carbon management surely if you grew yeah. lots of seaweed in the ocean you'd also have a lot more fish so wouldn't that help mm -hmm. us generally with the because like the seas are a bit overfished like quite a lot of people like eating fish such as myself and there don't seem to be enough fish to do that. It's rather unhelpful of the fish. You'd think they could just get on with it a bit quicker, but apparently not. So if we fed them lots of seaweed that we did ostensibly for carbon management, like this Ross George thing, right, with a hide of salmon, he he, he he seemed to do quite well out of that. I made a big plankton bloom. I don't think he necessarily stored any carbon, but mm. it seems likely that he grew quite a lot of fish. So, I mean, even if the carbon management thing turns out to be a red herring, then, uh, you know, can't we just... Have a lot of fish sounds quite good yeah and i think i think that's a really good point because yeah i i think we can become almost too too focused on on carbon in some of these things and while seaweed may not be our kind of best option for sequestering carbon long term it still may have many other benefits 
if we were to grow more of it, to cultivate more of it. And one of those benefits may be that it would attract fish. And we are... Which is equivalent of like ranching, right? You know, so a farmer doesn't, mm. with a ranch, they don't really, you know, it's not agriculture as such, is it? You know, you just fence off a bit of grassland and make sure it's maintained as grassland, chop the trees down when they grow, and then put some cows in it. And, you know, in the most basic version, the cows will just breed naturally and just go and take a few of them away after a while, right? Mm. So yeah. All you need I mean, a fence in the initial stock of cows. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It doesn't seem you know, particularly complicated. Yeah, I was going to say, except for the, fe- the fence issue. But yeah nets i mean yeah, but i mean like we don't we don't traditionally encapsulate fish stocks do we we normally just kind of go and catch them where they are and if you put mm. like fish will go to where the food is right they're not going to go and commute to go and eat their dinner so you're just <laughs> in the environment yeah. where the where the seaweed is right so if we grow lots of seaweed doesn't it become you know can you not have an ecosystem where financially it's sustained from fishing but has got a carbon sequestration benefit as a kind of byproduct well, that's where it is interesting. There was a there was actually a study that um, has come out. I think it's last year that was pointing out that many of the ocean afforestation estimates are based on net primary production, which is a measure that includes only the uh, the fixing of carbon and the respiration of the seaweeds themselves and it may include that the herbivores that are eating those seaweeds but it doesn't include take into account the respiration of say like the fish that are passing through and so they looked at what is the if we use net ecosystem uh, productivity rather than net primary productivity um yeah. as the measure and we include the respiration of fish and dolphins and seals and like all of the different invertebrates that would would inevitably live on the seaweed that actually most seaweed ecosystems were net sources of carbon not net sinks of carbon so it's kind of like while we would have this benefit of the fish you know potentially increasing fish stocks because we've got more habitat and more food for them the fish being in that ecosystem as a whole, if we look at the whole ecosystem, it's actually now a source of carbon. So we're not really looking at a at a kind of long-term carbon sequestration solution. But again, maybe maybe we can look for that elsewhere and it's still beneficial. Okay, is that only with standing biomass? Or are you saying that even when you take into account the uh, biochar manufacturer, you still end up with um, carbon source? Well... I don't know if that in particular has been studied, but if you're removing the seaweed, then you're removing like the habitat and food for the fish. So, well, not necessarily, because you might sustainably harvest it, for example. You might only that's take true. You might, might cut. A year, a year or whatever. Yeah, like you could, but I don't know if it works like, you know, like with land plants, some of them, you prune back and then they, they grow even better. Um, and bigger next time. I don't know whether seaweed would do that because it's a very different thing, and it's okay. mostly annual, not. Well, you're basically annual. saying is ecology is complicated, then, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bloody annoying. I like engineering where it either breaks or it doesn't break. Ecology is just annoying. You never quite know. Sure. There's, there's always something we haven't thought of. <laughs> it's always exactly. something. <laughs> 
like you're yeah. kind of exporting whelks and these whelks cause absolute chaos somewhere else things like that right you just haven't thought about it until 50 years later you realize all this money that you've thought you've made is all just turned to dust because you've done your mrv wrong that's measurement yeah. reporting and verification for people who don't know the acronyms the only acronyms we tolerate on this podcast are srm and cdr if you don't know those you shouldn't be listening go and read a book and come back <laughs> The rest of them will define because they're a bit too niche for most people. So, yeah, so in summary, seaweed use um, nitrogen more efficiently than phytoplankton do, and therefore you get more bang for your buck. And to some extent, they're easier to harvest as well. Growing may or may not be beneficial because complicated things happen with fish. And you can eat the fish, which is good because there aren't enough fish, and there are lots of people that like to eat fish. And if we can make more fish, that's good. But whatever you do with this will screw up your pelagic ecosystems anyway because um, you'd have to grow lots of seaweed in places the seaweed doesn't normally grow, which is kind of messing up your ecosystems and stuff that exists in the ocean already, although a lot of it's perhaps not very interesting because the areas of the sea that hasn't got a lot of seaweed can be quite barren, right? And Well, doing... but it's actually full of phytoplankton, but you can't see. Yeah, it would. Yeah, but but you know it's not like a rainforest, and we're not generally talking about coral reefs, are we? You know, we're talking about areas of the ocean that are a lot less interesting than those ecosystems. Um, so maybe if uh, could invent a a snorkel and mask that has light microscope on it, this is obviously impossible. Because if you don't necessarily see... think that's the case, <laughs> okay, I think you could make one of those without it being enormously difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I want a pair because if you could see, sound pretty good. I mean, well, I would just lose out about what they see, right? Yeah, exactly. I was trying to summarise. You're going off on further distractions. You are you are in Tasmania and you like it. You think it's amazing. You are uh, playing the violin for money a bit, but now talking to Fisher folk or. Fisher people, or whatever we call them now, in our politically correct word, word where we have to have a gender-neutral word to describe industry, it's probably about ninety-nine point five percent men, and um, uh, that doesn't directly relate to carbon, but sort of does. We made a tenuous link, and that's about what we've discovered while I've been faffing around and removing dead flies from my cars and cooking my tea and all the other things I'm doing when I'm doing a podcast because I sound boring and lazy when I've sat down, so I have to do my housework when I'm doing these. And that's the output of what we've been chatting about for the last hour, isn't it, roughly? Yeah, that about sums it up. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, well, I've got to decide. Let's find some tenuous grounds to reject your paper on. I think uh, I'm more, more going to reject your entire discipline, really, because, uh, well, firstly, it's complicated and annoying. It doesn't have any simple answers, which I hate. But the most annoying thing about it is it's just so, just the whole idea of doing a seaweed thing at scale is just so utterly stupid that, who cares about your carbon nitrogen ratios? I mean, like the whole thing is just nonsense. So, why bother even worrying about it? So, I think I'm going to reject the paper as not even fit to send out for review. It's 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 a it's a, a side issue, and academic irrelevance. Rather, is um is aping this other paper that has uh, got so many citations. Your te- your tenuous links to carbon removal. Along with all of the uh, companies operating this fi- in this field, sea fields and your running tires, you can all get in the sea, as far as I'm concerned. Boom, boom. So, 
yeah, I don't like any of this nature-based solution stuff. I'm not convinced any of it actually works. Um, and maybe that's because I'm ignorant and I should learn more about my discipline. But I just find the whole thing makes me very... I just see a lot of NBS-type solutions, things being done. And I see a lot of them that several years later are found completely not to work in various different ways. And I just it just feels like we're on an endless merry-go-round. Oh, this is brilliant. Oh, no, that doesn't work. Oh, this is brilliant. Oh, no, that doesn't work. So it just goes round and round and round. Every few years, we find something new. And every few years, that thing that we thought was brilliant and new then turns out to be load rubbish. We can't do it. I just hate a lot of it. It just annoys me intensely. So I'm going to reject that and all other papers in Nature-Based Solutions. Well, um, thanks for that. I'll let you get back to playing your violin. Thanks for coming on the show. And if you do anything useful in carbon including fish making, which I think is probably a better use of ocean fertilisation and carbon removal. And we'd, um, by all means, love to hear about it. And as a general point, please, scientists, send us your own papers. We always have to go looking for people to come on the podcast. Like, you know, we don't have a kind of like an all-seeing eye that finds all of the best papers that would make a brilliant podcast. So you've done something, you listen to the podcast, you've done a paper, and you'd like to have a reviewer to pick on you for a bit, then, you know, get in touch we're not hard to find we've got a twitter page i don't think you can get in touch with us directly through spotify but uh, you can certainly find us through bitter and we rev rev to geo or some such on twitter and uh, bother us with a paper if you would like said paper to be malevolently and maliciously maligned for an hour on the podcast you'd uh, be entertained by the career damage that will do to you do come along and have a chat to us about your research because we'd love to have the opportunity to bully you for a bit. Right, uh, that's quite enough from me and, uh, and in fact, from Emily as well. So I'm going to wrap up and we'll speak to you all in a few days' time. We've got another episode out. Got a busy week coming up this week. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for listening. And we just got one more thing to leave you with. Sometimes my science and music worlds inspire each other. So several years ago, I made some percussion instruments out of bull kelp or Davilia, which, as it happens, was the seaweed with the highest CN ratio in our study. Bull kelp is a large, thick and leathery seaweed that grows in exposed coastlines around Tasmania, and it can withstand some pretty powerful waves. After storms, it can sometimes be found washed up on the beach, and over the years I've collected some of it and made these percussion instruments. I call them kelp pillows, because I split open the seaweed and sort of hollow it out and then fill it up with sand, sew it together, and once it's dry, let the sand out, making these mini pillow shapes. I was playing these instruments at a gig and an audience member asked me if I'd ever thought of making a violin out of kelp. I said I wouldn't know how to do that, so he took on the challenge. And a few months later, he brought his first prototype to another gig for me to play. It was a shriveled half-size violin as the kelp shrinks considerably as it dries, but it was a start. Since then, he's also got a friend involved and they've made four or five kelp violins each. So to send you out, we're going to play you a track I made featuring these kelp instruments. If you aren't already listening on headphones, I really recommend you pause the podcast and go and grab some so that you can hear the bass in this track. Enjoy! Enjoy!